Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, episode 64, those outrageous outliers. That's the fascinating, interesting people you meet along the way that sort of march to their the, the beat of their own drum, so to speak, and as well to hostel or to not. The ups and downs of staying in hostels and other ways to find a bed while traveling by motorcycle. All that and a bunch more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations, freshtracks.co.uk. Now, before we get going today, I'm going to give a shout out to some people that helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Emmaus Moto Tours, Chris Ludwig, Herbert Sweeney, Kevin Cabral, Neil Greenhow, Dave Smith, John Maxwell and ADV5. Thank you all very much. It's so great to have listeners appreciate the show so much that they support with $50 or more. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out like you heard me just do. Uh, we also send out some cool Adventure Rider radio stickers. We would love your support, your monthly support on our Patreon account, which also has benefits of uh, like ad-free Adventure Rider radio. That's the main show. Um, stickers and a bunch more. Anyway, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, just in case Raw is a new discovery for you, I've mentioned Adventure Rider Radio. That is the flagship show. It comes out every week. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, to see what is happening. Now, here we go for Adventure Rider Radio Raw, May 2021. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the boreal forests of North America, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet. I'm joined by, well, most of my regular Overland co-hosts. I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with Michelle Lamphere. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm good, Jim. How are you? I'm very well, pumped and ready to go for the season. We're starting to get things... Well, nothing's opening up, but I, I shouldn't have went that way. What I'm just going to talk about is the bugs are coming out, right? So we've got the black flies out and that's exciting because with the black flies, there's not really that many mosquitoes and you know that spring has started. So it feels great to be bitten, I guess. How about you? It was, I don't know about the bitten yet. Maybe by the uh, the bug to go riding. I actually uh, got my bike out for the first time last week and I was pretty happy about that for International Female Ride Day about Very a week and a half nice. ago. Where did you go? Um, <laughs> six miles up the road to a lake and six miles back home. That was all I got. And how many days was that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Less than an hour, unfortunately. But hey, it was going to snow that afternoon. So wow. I took it while I could. <laughs> oh, that's great. Great to hear you riding again. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are up early in Australia. Good morning to the both of you. Good morning. Good morning, guys. The birds are chirping. We've had breakfast. I'm dressed. I've got my bike gear on. I've got two mates who are going to be waiting for me in an hour and a bit up at the local service station, and we're off riding the Spurs, which is uh, uh, a well-known area in uh, just out of Melbourne, um, the Black Spur and the Reefton Spur, and probably about a 400k ride for us today to take some photos for a magazine and um, it's about six, seven degrees. It's going to be a beautiful day and I've got my boots on and I'm ready to go. Shirley, is Brian uh, like just That's, excitable about everything or is it only t- motorcycling? I mean, <laughs> I, oh, 
Trust me, it's only motorcycling that gets him that excited and up and dressed so early. So like those days when you're going to do yard work and you're going to cut the grass and everything, Brian's not up in the morning with his work gloves on and pumped and ready to go and saying, yeah, I got to get out there and I got to cut the grass and (laughs) dig some holes. And Do you live down here, Jim? Do you you watch him over the fence? (laughs) that that clearly um, he is never that excited about doing anything around the around the house. Just oh, so, just much cycling, but that's you know, okay. See you guys. I get a I get a day of peace and quiet. <laughs> 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 and then, of course, is Sam Manicom laughing away there in the UK. Hello, Sam. It is hello, everybody. Um, all is really good here. Thanks. I tell you what, though, we've had some incredible rainstorms today absolutely hammering. And Birgit and I live up in um, the roof of an old Victorian house. And about an hour ago, I was thinking to myself, Jesus, recording the show is going to be really difficult. It sounds a little bit like I was sitting inside a huge drum, but it's all gone quiet now. The night is peace and it's a beautiful evening. So we're set. I didn't know you lived on the roof. Now, now that must be difficult no, 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 in the no, weather. Not on the roof. <laughs> oh, But right. I have a golfing umbrella, so it comes in handy when we get a leak. Right. You love those umbrellas, don't you? Oh, yes. The one we're missing is Grant Johnson, of course, uh, from British Columbia. And Grant is off. Um, unfortunately, couldn't make it at the last minute here. Maybe he'll come in. We might hear him pop in. But otherwise, we're going to continue on without Grant with the bunch of us. The first thing we've got to talk about, our, our part one. Um, now, we all know that, uh, and I'm, I'm going to give you the intro here. The, we all know that uh, in life, if nothing interesting happens, well, we don't have much of a story to tell. But when things go wrong, that's when the story really begins. And I think this is something we all know. We've run into this all the time. In fact, it's a telling and retelling of those stories that really um, post-adventure, that, that makes the adventure take on a life of its own. But there's also another character that sort of adds spice to our life. And that's what we want to talk about today. Especially when you're exposed to meeting new people, unfiltered. Sometimes these new people leave you scratching your head or, or maybe riding away and playing the encounter over and over in your mind in the days and weeks to come. And that's those outrageous outliers. Now, an, an outlier, you guys know what an outlier is? Does anyone not know what an outlier is? Of course, everybody knows what an outlier is. An anomaly, right? The, the people who are sort of outside the norm. It's really the interesting nuggets, isn't it? I mean, that's, this is my theory of humans. I think we're incapable of appreciating anything that's common like the seagull, for instance, unless the seagull isn't common where you are. But I, I think it's those anomalies that make us really appreciate things. So those the rare flower, the rare bird, or that rare outlier person that, uh, you know, seems to present themselves that are just completely different. Sometimes they're locals, you know, when you're traveling through an area. Sometimes they're the other travelers themselves. You, you meet them. So what kind of a, what kind of outrageous people have you guys met? And I just want to go through and talk about those and talk about the places that you've been in when you when you've met them um, and talk about how they sort of sort of shape the way you look at things or maybe change the way you look at things. I mean because because often outliers do that. That space is just for you to just jump in. <laughs> that probably wasn't a very good segue for you. I, I, I guess I didn't, I didn't ping that segue, did I, enough? So... Well, can I just say, Jim, when, when I was reading this and I said to Brian, well, this is really going to be tough for us. I don't think we've ever met any of these outlier people that Jim's talking about, not actually knowing what an outlier was. I have to raise my hand here with them. A little bit of embarrassment, and then we started talking about it, and we've actually met, met so many 
how would we describe them? Crazy, different, um, unusual people on the road that we'd never thought of as outliers. Some people think of us as outliers. Well, sure, right? sure, that's why I started to laugh when you said it, because you've heard the thing, you know, if you look around, you can't tell who the fool is. It's you, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. It's so exactly right. exchange fool for outliers. The number of times you've been pulled up in a service station and someone will come up in a car and say, are you really doing that? Are you traveling around the world? You know, you're crazy. Why haven't you got a gun? You know, there's all that sort of stuff, you know, and you just think, uh, well, maybe we are a bit out there. But, yeah, we've got some stories on some of the ones we've met, for sure. Do you want to hear some? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember you guys talking about some a couple that stayed with you that ended up getting divorced. And I know you told the story already, so maybe we wouldn't want to get into that. But, I mean, that's that's an, sort of an outlier situation anyway. I, I don't know how out there they were and, and uh, you know, as personality well, goes. They were, when we first met them, they were a really nice couple. But by the time we had to ask them to leave our house, things had changed dramatically <laughs> and certainly had changed more dramatically for them than anyone I else. I didn't want a homicide a happening in my house. We're on the head of the homicide squad, yeah, you know. It would have been really embarrassing. <laughs> but, yes, that was one of the um, – people say that these sort of, the sort of trips that we do will either make you or break you and that was a, a broken one, unfortunately. But one of the first unusual people we met was a guy, um, we were riding in Nepal and we saw this guy on a push bike sitting on the side of the road. So we did a UE and went back and started talking to him and he was from Romania and he was cycling around the world. Go, go, and back, he a, was, go back a bit. We spotted him on the road and we we detoured off into a little village and stayed for a couple of days oh, and came right. back on the road, on the main road. And passed him again. And it was lunchtime. So we pulled up, didn't we? We had lunch together. And um, it was actually the last photo I took for a while because the camera broke after photographing him. I don't know that whether that was relevant (laughs) or not. But um, we sat and talked to him and he was telling us his – his, he was from Romania, um, cycling around the world. Um, his a way of keeping healthy was to eat garlic, which he did point out meant he didn't have so many friends. Um, <laughs> which he probably didn't have to we, tell you that. No. Did he well, eat we garlic? Sat some distance after he was that. socially distanced. <laughs> <laughs> but we chatted to him for a while and he was a really interesting, if not unusual, critter. And then uh, we bumped into him again in Kathmandu and he was staying in a hostel near where we were staying and we saw him and some uh, some other travellers at a, at a restaurant for dinner one night and he was telling us that he was going to pedal on towards China. Into China. And he didn't actually have visas uh, to get into China, but that didn't worry him he was going to just um, sneak, sneak. sneak across the border at, at somewhere where there wasn't an outpost and uh, cycle his way through China. Uh, we kept in touch with him on the internet for a couple of months and then he just disappeared and we just wonder whether, I don't know, I'd hate to think what happened to him. I hope he, he got into China and out again safely but um, he was one of those weird ones that I just don't know what ever happened to him. Oh, you lost contact before he actually got to China. Yeah, we lost yeah, contact yeah, with yeah. him. We had yeah. been in regular contact with him as he got closer and closer to China. Yeah. Wow. So whether he got arrested, whether um, he changed his mind and went home and just bailed on contacting people that he'd been on the road with, I don't know. Wow. Do you remember his name? Because, I mean, if, we, uh, no. if, we, if we, could, we could announce it on this and then see if anybody's come across him at any stage. I'll trawl through my um, right, so I took yeah my diaries. Yeah, one yeah, for the show one notes. For the show notes. Yeah, that's right. And the other one, but 
our recent trip was the Russian vet, surely, you know. We crossed the border into Russia from Finland, and uh, um, we'd been given a few basic rubles, and it was a weekend, and we really needed extra uh, local currency to continue on um, towards St. Petersburg we were going. And we pulled into a service station. I just we were just standing there having a bit of a chat about it, hoping there'd be an ATM or something around. And um, this guy in a Mercedes pulls up. He's got the uh, two-piece. Very stylish leather, leather suit. Leather suit, yeah. Um, had a bum bag, you know, which a lot of mafia uh, gangsters carry a gun inside a bum bag, you know. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, and he's got gold chains all around him. I'm thinking, oh, this is a bit, uh, <laughs> might be a little bit willing here. And he came up and he just wanted to, to ask what we were doing, where we were going. And we, we said we were looking for um, uh, auto talent machine. And he said, oh, you need money. You need money. And he's pulled out of his uh, little um, pouch wads of money to give to us. To give to you? Thinking, Yes, yep, yes, yep. yep, yep, just to give us money. And I'm thinking, uh, is this guy mafia? Will we be hooked up with this guy? Won't we? Um, will it cost us in the long run? Anyway, we, we had to refuse. We just couldn't go on it, on with it. But he was a really, really nice guy, but, boy, gee, looked like a big, burly uh, Russian mafia, if you know what I mean. He said he was a vet, yeah. as in a veterinarian, but I, I don't know. <laughs> it is one I've of those. If it walks a... like a duck and clucks like a duck, then it probably yeah. is one. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a vet wear enough goals to buy and sell small countries. <laughs> no, <laughs> I have not. Well, they and do make good money. That's the kind of yeah. yeah. Well, maybe in Russia. You start to wonder where he got his leather suits from. <laughs> no, it was leisure. I, it was my oh, mispronunciation because okay. my mouth's asleep because it's so early. A leisure oh. suit, you know those two-piece nylon yep. tracksuit sort of track things, suits. Yeah. with gold jewelry and a leather pouch that probably did have a gun. And he was driving a big Mercedes with blacked-out windows, so we couldn't actually see who was in the car with him. He was very friendly and wanted to give us loads of money, but there was just something yeah. a little bit odd. <laughs> The mm. whole package. Are you honest when somebody asks you something like that? This guy pulls up and and says, "What are you? Where are you going?" Etc. Do you actually say where you're going? We don't give them the address no. if that's what you mean. <laughs> I'm just curious. You know, like I mean, you know how how open are you guys when you're traveling and you meet these people that you know that seem a little strange? Oh, we just said we were heading to St. Petersburg. I mean, we were obviously foreigners traveling somewhere. We were at a petrol station in the middle of nowhere um, in a country that we couldn't read the language or speak the language. And um, while Brian said we were just standing there discussing the ATM, I probably had the look of a stressed maniac on my face because I would have been, <laughs> we've got no money, we've got nowhere. Oh, we did actually have somewhere to stay, yeah. but we just had to get to St. Petersburg to do it. So it was. Feel my pain, guys. Feel my pain. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but we've had good experiences too. Um, well, that was good. I mean, oh, he, yeah, he yeah, didn't I shoot us. So. Yeah, I mean, he's offering you money. Exactly. He no, he didn't shoot us. You know, but we've had great experiences in in Denmark. Um, uh, again, through Horizons Unlimited, we met up, um, hooked up with a guy who was an ex BMW mechanic. I said, "Oh, I'm just going to 
change the oil on the bike and all that sort of stuff. We could get that done. He said, oh, come and stay at my place. So we ended up staying at his place, Shirley, uh, me and a friend of ours, Dave Hand from um, Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, we all stayed at his house. And he had a, a fully functional workshop with a, complete with a lift, which was on hydraulics that came out of the floor to service bikes. And um, he um, he sourced parts for me, serviced the bike um, on his computer, the whole bit, and fed us and watered us. And took us riding, took, took us, us riding, riding on the, on the beach. beaches. Yeah. And, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful man. Um and, you know, you stay friends with these people. And there was another one in Goa in um, India that uh, I needed to get some oil. And he said, oh, come out of my, my, my shop uh, on Sunday. So Shirley stayed laying by the beach and I go around to uh, change the oil on the bike and do the valves. And he and I sat in his garage drinking beer um, it took us hours to do the bike and drink all his beer. I actually and thought on that occasion he had been abducted. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a, he had a, uh, a pet civet. So uh, I came back after dark. Uh, Shirley was wandering around in circles getting worried, but uh, I was very happy. So, you know, you meet, you meet some great people. And are they, are they outliers? I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Of, uh, why, what is their attraction to you as a traveler? Why do they look at you and want to help you and spend time with you? I mean, they don't have no idea what you're going to be like. Yeah. I often wonder that. <laughs> uh, well, good point. But if, you know, if I saw a traveler sitting on the side of the road or someone, uh, you know, I'd go and talk to them. And if they needed a hand um, in my local area, well, I know all the bike shops and all that, I'd help them. Certainly, if ever I see someone anywhere looking at a map, I go and ask if I can help, which in some ways is ridiculous because I have no sense of direction. But, um, <laughs> you know, I know what it's like to be standing on a corner in an unusual city or on a, an intersection where you have absolutely no idea where to go uh, and to have someone who may have some local knowledge come up and, and offer assistance. I always, particularly if you see tourists in the city, standing there with a map, not knowing where they're going. Mm. You don't see as many maps but, but, so nowadays, do you? I mean, no, people follow no, GPSs. No, 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 it's, no it's, all right. A tourist town and it's a student town. And five years ago, I always used to be, when I was walking through town, I was looking for people who were looking lost or um, had their maps out and would make a point of going over to help. Haven't seen people with maps out for a very long time. It's all, you know, following their phones and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And what a shame that is because they lose the opportunity to have a connection with a local person. Um, yeah, that, that's what I was yeah. thinking is that, that connection, that that random connection you're, you're missing. That. So technology is removing that from us. You know, we think it's mm -hmm. helping us so much and it's um, it's making us tougher to spot people who are lost. It's making us self-sufficient. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes not being self-sufficient was a door opener. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Very true, Michelle. Yeah, and something that pulls you together, isn't it? I mean, people, when they move into a, a neighborhood or an area, they often have a feeling that they don't need their neighbors, and, and they don't for a lot of things. And I think that's what causes that um, that disconnect. You know, you, you tend to not respect or be respected by your neighbors because you don't communicate with them, you don't do anything with them. You know, it's, it's not like sort of back in the day, I guess you could say. 
One of the sort of um, traditional um, customs in the UK was always if somebody moved into your street, then you would take them around a cup of sugar because when this started, I suppose sugar was considered to be an, a, a luxury. So this was a, a really nice gift um, to give to somebody. That uh, Birgit was telling me that in Germany, um, when somebody moved into the street, you would take around um, a, a twist of salt and um, some bread to make people feel at home. Mm. And it is just that opportunity to make somebody welcome, isn't it? That connection. Yeah. Um, that physical thing. Yeah. Well, that's that's the typical, uh, uh, is it the Muslim thing or the Iranian thing, Shirley, where um, you welcome, uh, it's a Muslim thing, where you, you welcome people into your home to stay for two days and you make bread for them. Uh, but on the third day, the bread is made with a particular mark on it to indicate that it's time to leave. That's uh, yeah, true. <laughs> How about you, Michelle? Have you been invited uh, to into somebody's home before, been entertained by somebody who's a, a bit of an outlier? Oh, gosh. Probably more times than I than I can count. But I think that really comes with traveling, that especially if you're on the road for a long period of time, months or years, then I think you run into a few here and there. I remember um, having flown, uh, I was traveling with my boyfriend and had flown home, flown our bikes from Buenos Aires to Vancouver, actually. So this isn't a very exotic country, but just an, an example of um, we had gotten the bikes at the airport, picked them up and ridden to a small motel nearby. And we're just hauling in luggage and getting settled into a room. And a couple pulled up in a convertible. And uh, we, we don't know anybody. We've just landed in town and gotten our bikes. And the husband walked over and said, uh, hey, what are you two doing for dinner tonight? And invited us to their home for dinner. And uh, I, I mean, I was very caught off guard. It was very kind, very generous, um, you know, but really unexpected, especially, you know, in a westernized part of the world. A lot of times you'll see that type of thing happen in um, you know, places in other countries, but I, I, it isn't something that I see that much in North America. So anyway, um, we accepted and went to their house. And, and one of the first questions that we asked as we arrived with a bottle of wine to say, thank you for having us was, um, why, why did you invite us? <laughs> not, not to be ungrateful. We're very happy to be here. And, uh, they had actually been, um, car enthusiasts and they had done some rallies with cars even overseas and had traveled a bit and they had seen the stickers on our panniers and had said I bet they have some interesting stories to tell we should invite them for dinner and they just randomly pulled over and invited us for dinner and it was fantastic so wow. we shared stories they had all kinds of photos in their home of places that they had traveled and different, um, you know, different experiences they had had. So we spent an entire evening, several hours just sitting and, and drinking wine and sharing stories. And it was just completely random and such a serendipitous moment and experience. So much fun. And you didn't find out afterwards there's serial killers or anything like that. No, I'm here to tell about it. So. <laughs> well, you know, there was this, there was a story I remember hearing about like that, where somebody somebody had met up with somebody, found out afterwards they were serial killers or something, and I guess they liked oh, them well. and let them go. But but they, you know that is kind of a weird thing for the Western world, isn't it? I mean, people you know shows up and just pulls over in a vehicle and says, "What are you doing for dinner? Would you like to come to my house?" No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, most times, right? And in particular, when you're not from the area, right. it is it is kind of strange. 
I'm having a real struggle this, with this because for a large part of my life, if something like that had happened, I would have taken one look at them and thought, yeah, you look okay. I, I like the expression on your face. I like the way you're holding yourself. I like, you know, the clothes are okay. I'm not seeing anything dodgy about you at all. I'll see what happens. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. And off you go. But um, are we being scared out of it now? It, I, I was talking with a friend about hitchhiking the other day. And um, he was saying to me that he never hitchhikes. And we had hitchhiked together quite a lot when we were in our um, teens. And um, I said to him, when was the last time you hitched? And he said, well, it must be 30 years now. Why did you stop hitchhiking? Oh, I just feel too uneasy about people getting into strangers' cars. Yeah, but we always used to do that. And it started us both thinking about the whole business of hospitality and do we put too much fear factor into genuine offers? One of the things that I loved about traveling in North America was that it was one of the most hospitable um, parts of the world that I'd been to. And those sorts of things happen quite a lot um, to Birgit and myself. It, but it, they started off, as Michelle was saying, because of the stickers on the bikes. They gave something as a sort of intro as to who we were. Um, so they weren't sort of looking at us as being dirty, dangerous motorcyclists because it works two ways, doesn't it? But, I mean, one of the other countries that has been incredibly hospitable to me when I've been traveling has been Australia. Brian and Shirley, you guys can be really proud of this because it happened all over the place. People just invited me into their homes at a drop of a hat. Um, I'd not asked, I'd not hinted, they just saw and invited. And the first week on, on the big trip that I stayed in Sydney, um, I was invited to stay with family or friends. And I'd met these friends in South Africa, um, spent a, you know, a few weeks with them, and they just said, yeah, if you're ever in Sydney, look up our family, they'll take care of you. And so they did. And I said to them when I was staying with them, why did you risk it with a complete stranger? And he just looked at me and he said, well, you like beer? How, beer, how bad could you be? In any case, we wanted to be friends with my sister. And I thought, yeah, okay, this is Australia. Nice one. Yeah, yeah, if you've got a, if someone's um, given you an introduction to people, I think that's a very different thing. We've had people stay here when travellers we've met on the road have uh, recommended that they contact us, and we think, well, if you know, if they're a friend of this couple, they'll be fine. So rather than just organising to meet them for a meal, we've asked them if they'd like to stay, and um, yeah, that usually works out. Random strangers. Look, it's usually okay, it's isn't it? But uh, and hitchhiking, no way. Uh, every time I think of hitchhiking, Sam, I think of the Highway of Tears in British Columbia, where all those young women have gone missing. I mean, this was yeah. back in 2012 when we were there, uh, and there were signs everywhere saying how dangerous it was to hitchhike, and there was a serial killer working this stretch of highway, and we still saw young girls hitchhiking. So no, hitchhiking is out for me. That's One too risky. Times. One of the times I was in Australia, the same sort of thing was happening and, and backpackers were just disappearing off into the bush and never heard of again. The Langalo State the full Forest. Story. Yeah, yep. that's the he one. Murdered, uh, I don't know, eight or ten backpackers that they think, Ivan Malat, one of the creepiest individuals you'll meet in a 10-day march. Yeah, we had happy days. He just died. That's good. <laughs> you know, the thing is, those stories, they do really have, um, they leave quite a wake, don't they? You know, that they, um, they make a big splash, they get retold and told over. And there's a lot of people out there traveling, you know, like, like I'm just thinking about the whole weirdo thing. Like even, even when it comes to hitchhiking, I don't condone hitchhiking. I don't want anyone to go out there and hitchhike because we're saying this, but it does make you wonder if that, you know, it's the, it's the, it's such a freak chance that you're, that you're going to meet this weirdo. Um, mm -hmm. 
I mean, and, and as far as seeing a traveler, and it's it's notable that you guys both mentioned about the stickers on your panniers. I hope um, people listening to this will pick up on that because that's an, an interesting thing. If you're wondering why people might put stickers or one of the benefits of it, it does label you as a traveler, which in one way could could set you up for, you know, if somebody has a malicious thought about taking advantage of somebody who's traveling, but it also lets people know you're traveling. And as far as a, a criminal, how can you be a criminal and travel? Would that work, Brian? You know more about that. <laughs> I mean, from the other side. They are, they are quite itinerant, uh, Jim. But, but, uh, but, you know, we, we, had that, we had that experience. We were um, in South America, and a guy took a photo of our bike um, with all the stickers on it. He saw us riding past, and we just happened to bump into it. Was near, um, we were on a boat trip out to see a glacier, and he he, he heard was, us talking, and I had an Australian MotoGP beanie on, and he said, oh, have you on a bike that travelling through – and of course, he'd, he'd seen our bike, and we ended up staying with him in. Um, he was our very own rocket Oregon. scientist. He was. He was a rocket scientist, seriously. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, and we had a wonderful couple of days staying with him, and that was just a random. He hadn't even met us with the bike. He'd just seen the bike, and then picked us as well. You can pick us as foreigners most places, really. But it's, it's the same story as Michelle's. You know, he um, uh, took us in. Introduced his to to his friends. Went out to dinner with his friends, and of course, we had interesting stories, as had he. So it goes both ways, and I think um, we, we've we've lost a little bit of that um, personal interaction, I suppose you'd call it. Is it paranoia? Oh, partly, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah and I think Michelle hit it on the head too. It's it's a, the digital age where oh yeah, well, I'm independent. I can do my own thing. Or and you sit down, you see all these kids at, at, at cafes uh, on their phones. Not just kids either, I must say. But um, uh, that's rather antisocial, isn't it? I think that time is is um, changing slightly because most for what well, for the last let's say ten years. People have had their noses in their telephones and they've become more and more insular. But it, I get the feeling from comments that I see on social media and conversations that I have with people that it's actually beginning to change because some people are beginning to realise what the disadvantages of sticking their noses in their phones are and that they are missing out on the opportunity for the, the humor, human interactions and the opportunities and the laughs that happen because you've suddenly met somebody that's oh, just funny or interesting or whatever. Um, and I hope that that continues to change. It's like using the GPS, isn't it? Versus a map. Everybody sort of straight into GPS and lots of people stopped using maps, but people are beginning to go back to using both because they're realizing the value of both. And uh, the personal interaction you were talking about, if you're in a pub and you're on your own and you're sitting on your phone, the people at the table next to you will leave you alone because you might be doing something really important or reading a book that you're engrossed in or whatever. But if you're just sitting there waiting for your meal to come with a beer in front of you, chances are the people at the table next to you will start a conversation. You might end up joining them and then maybe make an arrangement to go and do something together the next day. Yeah. It, it takes you out. Not having your phone open in front of you doing something that absorbs your attention it does leave you open to meeting um, and interacting with people around you. It's the difference between having an open book and a closed book. 
And I played a few games when I was traveling and going to a bar. And um, if I didn't want to be disturbed, I'd open my book and I'd be reading as I was drinking my my pint. If I was really happy to have a conversation, then I would leave my book closed on the table in front of me. And quite often the title would be something that would start the conversation going. The book being closed um, was an opening. It was, you know, a a, a sign that um, I was up for a conversation. That's a great idea. Have you guys ever met somebody who who sort of changed the way you looked at something? You know, you know, you randomly bump into someone, spend a little time with them, and, and have them, you know, sort of turn something on its head for you. Um, probably opened my eyes a little. Um, that Frank in Norway, Shirley, who was a scuba diver in Norway, um, would take scuba diving tours, which I was thinking, well, geez, it must be bloody cold the water up there. But he, he opened up the fact that there's so many war wrecks, German war wrecks and things like that that I knew nothing about. And I know a fair bit about um, um, scuba diving in the Pacific. And that, that, to me, that just opened my mind up to, to what's out there mm. and the fact that the cold water maintains these things so well. So I don't know whether that's a good example or not, but to me, that just flashed into my mind. We're yeah, still no. friends with him on Facebook and he takes the most amazing photos of the northern lights oh, and yeah. the reflections in the dark fjords and oh, what a place to live apart from the climate. But <laughs> <laughs> it's just the most beautiful place. It's just gorgeous up there. No, Norway's just incredible, isn't it? Well, on a sunny day. Oh, it's just beautiful. <laughs> yep, on yeah, on a sunny day. Um, I met a, a Japanese 125cc trail bike rider in um, Africa and I've mentioned him in, in other shows when we've been talking about other things. But I never really talked about the full story with him. And he made me think about things that I'd, I'd never considered before. I met this chap in Kenya and we wild camped together up towards Lake Tur- Turkana, which is the, the t- desert area up in northern Kenya. And he'd come down the west side of Africa at a time when no one was supposed to be able to make it through because of the fighting and closed borders. And Hideki said to me when I asked him about this, oh, I heard shooting, but I didn't think it was at me, so I no worry. And I thought, yeah, what a great attitude. But you know, the description of Wiry was made for this guy. He had a really thin face, a shock of black hair that always stood up in all directions, you know, real spike. It was almost punk, but not supposed to be. And his attitude for so many different things made me evaluate um, where I was coming from. For example, he only had one T-shirt. And I said to him, how do you manage with one T-shirt? And he said, I wash, I wear. And that was it. That was just his simple (laughs) response. I wash, I wear. But this guy had pushed his bike across much of the Sahara on the Taman Rasset route. Um, and he'd had to do so because his 125ccs weren't enough to get him, his load of fuel and his water through all the softy sand sections. But he had a, a really quiet, watchful, in a, a relaxed sort of way. And you could just see him soaking up details from, from around him. And I really enjoyed watching him. But the, the thing that made me laugh about him was he had a completely mad laugh. And the weirdest things would get him going. And you could hear him sometimes, you know, our paths back and forth on, and crossed. And I linked him up with him in a couple of different places, but only because of his laugh. I heard his laugh in a market, for example, in one place, and in a town um, hotel in another place. And he thought, 
thought that monkeys were the funniest things ever. And I wish I could do a Japanese accent because he said to me one day, um, put one in a suit and it looked just like his sister's husband. And he just cracked up laughing. <laughs> this was just so disrespectful for a Japanese guy. And I was uh, when, I, when he first said that, I, I was sitting there thinking, all your journeys have made you a very, very different person. How on earth are you going to fit into Japan again? And I didn't, I'd never been to Japan. I didn't know an awful lot about it, but obviously you know, I knew enough. And so we got talking about it and he said he was going to find it incredibly difficult to fit back into Japan because he was going to be a, a round peg in a square hole. But his laugh... <laughs> He'd spent too much time wild camping with hyenas. Now, if you've never heard a hyena laugh, that is Hideki's laugh. And just imagine that ringing out in a market in Africa and you'll know why he makes me smile. I just think Gosh. the fact he was riding a 125 through Africa would have made him fairly interesting to, from the go-get. Oh, absolutely. He was riding the smallest CC of any of the bikes um, uh, that people were riding that I met. Most people, um, there were a few people on XT500s, but most people were on 650s um, upwards. Very few th people are over a thousand CCs. But uh, yeah, he was riding the tiniest of bikes, um, really leanly kitted out. Most of his carrying capacity was fuel and water. Um, very interesting guy. He'd obviously thought it out. Um, but yeah, enjoyed spending time with him. Made me think. Are all the characters sort of full on or, or, or are there different degrees that, that you guys have run into? I mean, you know, when you like this guy, he, he sounds full on. Like you're, you're talking about his laugh and everything. He, he's, he's just so unique. Um, or, or is it sort of all variations? I think it's all variations, at least from my experience. I've, I've run into um, even kind of subtle stories of people that inspire me. I remember being in, uh, oh gosh, on Carretera Astral, so Southern Chile, and running into an American woman who was also riding a KLR, which is what I was on at the time. And uh, she had been traveling in South America with her boyfriend for a year or two, and they'd broken up. So she was afraid of traveling on her own, and she parked the bike and stored it in Chile for a few months, and she went home to the U.S. to kind of get herself together and maybe save a bit of money and make sure that, you know, she was prepared to do the rest of the trip on her own and maybe even consider quitting it. But when I ran into her, she'd gotten back on the road, and she was just having a blast and making the most of doing it on her own. So I, I really found her inspiring, and she was just fun to watch. I actually crossed paths with her a few times over the next month. And you could just see her really kind of blossom as a traveler, doing things differently on her own than she had done as a couple. But I remember um, just, you know, running into her in Ushuaia, running into her in Argentina, and listening to the stories of, you know, how she had been so afraid of traveling on her own and how many people had taken her in and helped her. She'd had a flat tire. She'd had some issues with weather and bad roads on uh, Ruta 40, which is famous for mud and gravel, or at least it was at the time. And uh, yeah, she was just constantly amazed by how people were coming out of the woodwork, fellow travelers and locals, and everyone really was going above and beyond to help her finish that trip. So she found it even more enriching than when she was traveling with her partner. How fantastic. 
Does yeah. meeting her and hearing yeah. her story, Michelle, sort of make you think differently or, or change the way you think at all? Uh, oh, for sure. Because I think, you know, you hear a lot of travelers or even want to be travelers, people that want to get out and do things, but they're afraid that they don't want to do it on their own or they, you know, the fear of the unknown sometimes keep keeps people from taking that first step and leaving home. You're so worried about having to prepare and having to be able to manage everything on your own, how to work on the bike, how to, you know, lift the bike if you drop it, even if you're traveling on your own. And uh, just to see her be so confident after even as little as, you know, a couple of months on the road, it, I thought it was really inspiring. And it's it's something that even at that point, I'd been traveling for a couple of years through the Americas before I ran into her. And I, I really still found it really inspiring that it's it's possible. And, you know, for the most part, I know we kind of talked about the the fear and the there's there's weirdos out there in the world and and certainly you're vulnerable when you're on the road and you're relying on people to you know sort of look out for you even even if you are self-sufficient self-contained it's really nice to think that if something does happen that the majority of people are going to help you and they're going to be good and you'll be safe but uh, yeah to get out there and and kind of spread your wings and and take that leap of faith is, is a big deal. So I applaud people who do that. And for the most part, it turns out beautifully. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think we all do that, Michelle. I think, you know, we have that trepidation and once you get on the road, they all disappear. And when you go to meetings with people and, and, and Sam, you'd see, hear this when people want to travel, but they have all these, uh, trepidations about what what's going to happen to them on the road, or what about what about if this happens? What about if that happens? Well, you know, once you start, all those things just fade away. You know, and you, you get over these little hurdles as as they present themselves. I think maybe we've just become too insular, and we miss out on so much because of it. Yeah. When, when people tell me that they're too afraid to travel because they're afraid of other people, I always tell tell them tales of hospitality and the funny things that happen. And yeah. um, because that that's it's real, and yeah. people want to hang on to something real, don't they? In in this world of unknown. But you know that feeling um, when you go of the uncertainty and that tingle and the worry and everything else. I kind of like that feeling. <laughs> um, I'm always a bit sad. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the day that I don't have that feeling is the day that I shouldn't be setting out on a particular trip because it's it's not given me that buzz. Yeah. Why do you like that feeling? Yeah, that's true. Why do I like it? Um, because t- I recognize it as being my senses waking up. It's, um, it's putting common sense on alert. It's, it's bringing my sense of smell and sound and awareness of people and paying attention alive and all of those sorts of things. And I really like that. It's like sticking a, um, a struggling plant in, in a bowl of water. And yeah, um, that's what travel does for me. I love that feeling. But you know, we were talking about how people affect you. Um, I met some a Maori family when I was hitchhiking around New Zealand. And I was hitchhiking because I'd broken my motorcycle in Australia and I had to leave it there while it was being fixed. So I ended up hitchhiking mm-hmm. around New Zealand. Hang on. Did you did you have it did you have a crash? No. Um really? oh, I, I broke it. I, Brian, you're, you're, you're spoiling my fun here. I was supposed to... <laughs> I didn't start something with a fall off. <laughs> sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. <laughs> 
oh dear, I thought I was going to be able to slip that one in. No, seriously, I, I, <laughs> I broke part of my bike out of stupidity. But well, anyway, we all do that, don't we? Um, sooner or later, well, he's based um, novice. Okay. Slightly. Sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Um, Sorry, back to the cave. But anyway, um, so I'd ended up hitchhiking around New Zealand, and it was actually quite a nice thing to do, um, to be off the bike, in part because it made me really appreciate um, when I got back on the bike. And it made me appreciate all of the things while I was hitchhiking around that I was missing, like the freedom to wake up in the morning and think, where do I want to go today? But also the randomness um, was of a different type when I was hitching. Um, so the randomness on the motorcycle was, well, I'll take that left turn. It looks interesting down there. The randomness with hitching was, well, where are the family going to take me? Or, you know, where am I going to get this lift dropping me off? But this particular family were Maori and they were driving this beat up old clunker of, um, a, a Toyota and how this thing kept going, goodness knows, but the car was full. <laughs> And the Maori family were all chubby and all smiley and all friendly and obviously not very well off. But as soon as I was in the car, chatting away like it was an old friend, like I'd done many trips with them before and all of this sort of stuff. And mum did not mind her, I reckon, two-year-old toddler treating me as a climbing frame. And this kid was just all over me. The only thing that was wrong with that was that this kid had a chocolate milkshake that it was sharing with me. But <laughs> on the outside, I was absolutely soaked by the time I got out of this car. But it really didn't matter because the whole experience in that car was just a bubble of friendless, friend, friendliness. And these people have stayed in my mind ever since as being, yeah, the sort of top people that you meet. That's a fun story. I remember riding into a town in Ecuador and um, <laughs> my boyfriend at the time and I had planned to meet a friend of his who he'd met in Alaska when they were each traveling and ran into each other in uh, along the road someplace in Alaska. So we were invited to stay with this family in Ecuador and we went to their house and rang the gate. There was a sort of a doorbell or a buzzer out on the gate around their property and no one came to the door. Nobody came out. So we sat for a couple of minutes and pretty soon a man comes running across the street and he's um, not elderly, but he's older and uh, he comes trotting across and he's saying, oh, oh, are you friends of, of this person? And we said, yes, we were. So he said, oh, you're, you're to come with me. Come with me. Follow me. Follow me. So we get on our bikes, back them out onto the street and follow him across the street and to his property. And the homes there are surrounded with concrete, big high block walls and then um, guarded at the entrance with a big steel gate. So he opens the steel gate to his property and he says, come, come, come. And he, you know, motions us in as waving us. So we pulled the two bikes in and quickly he shuts the gate behind us. And I'm saying to my partner in English, because I'm assuming that this gentleman can't speak any English, which I should never assume. That's when you really get into trouble. But I, <laughs> I make the comment just jokingly. How ironic would this be if this is one of those places where, you know, you get kidnapped and we've just willingly rolled our bikes into this compound and we're never heard from again. And, you know, we're, we're kind of laughing about it because we know that that's absolutely not the case. And, and in fact, of course, quite the opposite. We hop off the bikes and he's saying, come in, come in, come in. So we go into the house 
and uh, his wife is preparing lunch for their grown sons who are there for lunch. And she puts fresh heaping plates full of food in front of us and says, welcome, welcome. We know that you're here to stay with our neighbors, but they're gone for a moment. We're, we're not going to leave you out on the street. So come have lunch with our family. This is my name. This is her name, introduces us and goes around the table. And we spent the afternoon with them until our actual friends across the street made it home. But we were just scooped up by neighbors. Wow. And it was, it was really so fun um, just, you know, to kind of follow along yeah. and be welcomed into this, in, to this family's home. Wonderful. So they didn't say they understood English and knew what you they said? <laughs> they did not. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought you I might say that. <laughs> but the clang a- of the gate, so I can imagine you going, <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> <laughs> It could happen, but it didn't, thankfully. <laughs> But most people are good. Most people want to look after you, you know. Um, I think those fears are really – we exaggerate those fears. Maybe it's media or, you know, I don't know what it is, but I hope we we don't lose it. You ever had one go go wrong, Brian, when you guys were out? Um, No, not really. I thought we've always had good experiences, you know. We've had flat tyres and, and, and I've had guys who are obviously out with motorcycle gang members um, chuck a bike in the back of the ute and take us to somewhere where we could get it fixed. And you know, We've always had good experiences on the road, never a bad experience. How about you, Michelle? I, I'd say the same. I've never had a bad experience. In fact, just varying levels of good all the way to fantastic and unbelievable. So wow. they're very generous yeah. people out there in the world. Sam, aside from crashing, um... <laughs> <laughs> Brian, this is your fault. <laughs> um, pretty, you met, pretty you much, met some lovely um, nurses and doctors, Sam. You've really met some really interesting people. Yeah, I have actually. I should talk about the doctors that I've stayed with, shouldn't I? <laughs> well, we, we don't want to make this too long, Sam, so you might want to no. just pick a few of the top ones. And <laughs> no, I'm changing the subject totally very quickly. Um, most of the experiences have been absolutely brilliant. And there have been a few times where um, I, I've been sort of going along and thinking, uh-oh, where's, where's this going to? But it's inevitably worked out to be really well. And there have been other times when I've been traveling and I found myself in a situation and I've been thinking, oh, this is, this is really not good. Um, picture this scene. Um, in Nepal, Birgit's um, traveling on the back of the bike with me. And this is the first time we've been two up on the bike together. We've just spent um, the better part of three weeks with both of us being ill, Birgit with a lung infection and me with Jardia. But we've got to get out of India because uh, out of um, Nepal because Birgit's visa's already run out and mine's about to. So we're two up on the bike and we're wobbling our way towards the border with India. Um, but my eyes are bigger than my physical appetite and I choose um, a dirt road for us to go on. Um, really stupid. Um, we should have stayed on the busier but firm surface main road. But I chose it because I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure if I've got the energy to duck and dive through all of the traffic. So maybe the back road will be better. But the trouble was 
this back road got more and more difficult to ride. And it ended up with the track being a little bit like um, a capital M shape. So the wheels would go along the tops of, of the um, the peaks of the M. And literally the sides were really steep slope and it was thick mud and it was really greasy. And we were going along the top of this and I was just thinking, I really, really hope that we are not going to meet somebody coming the other way because there is no way that I can paddle backwards. I don't have the strength to do it and I'm not sure that I can keep the bike up on the top of, of the flat bits on the ends. Um, anyway, yeah, well, Birgit was sitting absolutely stock still and even the slightest wriggle would have sent her sideways and so I'm, I'm getting more tired and more nervous and then, of course, round a sharp bend, there was a completely overloaded Nepali bus sitting right smack in the middle of the track <laughs> and the driver sitting looking at us. And this guy has about 10 feet of people and luggage loaded on the top of the bus. And he's sitting there just staring at me. Not a blink, just a completely straight face. And I'm just thinking, oh, what an earth am I going to do now because there's no way I could get the bike down the side of the track if I'd done that I, I, I wouldn't have got it back up again so then he starts to smile but it's a really evil little smile <laughs> and he's revving his engine so he's making the whole bus bounce backwards and forwards and you could see this almost wave of people and luggage on the top bouncing backwards and forwards as he's doing this he's got no consideration for them at all and I'm starting to think, oh man, this is this is about to get really nasty because he's really looking at me nastily. And then he just gives me this big beaming smile, reverses backwards along the top of this as, as if he's done it a million times before and he's driving a tram on tram lines. And we pulled forward and stopped, of course, to thank him for reversing. And he just cracked up laughing, looking out of the window. And he said, did I just make your day more interesting? <laughs> she did, she passed it. <laughs> the people at the top of the bus, they were just looking down at us as if completely bored, as if this was just yet another um, hassle and obstacle in their day. But I've never forgotten the expression on that driver's face when he was smiling down at us. It was, yeah, one of those moments that you just did not know what was going to happen next. But hey, people, wow. great. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty yep. cool. Um, the, only, the only other thing I want to ask about this is, is about cultures. I'm kind of curious about, um, have, have you had experiences where you've... Um, You've been invited to somebody's home. Sort of get a pig, get an idea of what what the how they live and what their culture is like, and that sort of opened up your eyes. Anyone have a story about that? Um, I've told the story about having my testicles poked before, haven't I? So I better not say that one again. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I don't know. I, I don't want to bite at this. It's, it's, <laughs> I don't remember that story, and I usually remember them all, but <clears throat> I don't remember Sounds that story. Like what you should remember. It does, doesn't it? Does it, Michelle? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those ones that sort of sticks. No, I don't think I've heard this before. I'm not sure I want to, but no, you don't want to, Jim. Um, pick up, pick up your copy of Into Africa. You'll find it about halfway through. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. Well, it's been a while since I read Into Africa. I mean, it's been a number of years, actually. So uh, maybe I'll have to do that. Anyway, uh, culture, uh, you know, experiencing someone's culture, going into their place and, and seeing how they lived and sort of being um, a bit of an eye-opener for you, and, you know, just something memorable. We were invited into a, um, a family's home in, in Norway and um, I mean, it, the culture was very similar to ours, but 
the there was a, they had two little girls and mum um, and dad both spoke really good English and the little girls the eldest one was learning English at school so she would point to something on the table and she'd go glass and cup and knife and she was practicing her English she got bored with this very quickly and leaned across to uh, to her parents and said in Norwegian it would be so much easier if these people spoke Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know that she and said I that? Did they tell thought, you? Yes, because yeah, yeah, yeah. they roared with laughter and they told us, and I thought, she is so right. <laughs> if we could speak Norwegian, we could all speak together. But we'd met this young man at a at a cafe and, um, and then we met him again on the ferry and he said um, – he wanted to know where we were staying that night and we've arrived at the hotel and he was sitting outside having a having a beer. Um, so we palled up with him that night and then he said to us when we were in, um, I can't remember the city, uh, but anyway, he invited us to his home and it was lovely to meet his family. But as we were riding there, I said to Brian, I do hope they're not going to serve us reindeer. <laughs> what? <laughs> they served us reindeer. Did you eat it? <laughs> yeah, I had to. <laughs> but I've never told my daughters. <laughs> I just couldn't. Why? How could you eat Rudolph? I mean, it's just exactly. sort of a, wow. it's a cultural thing. What's the chance of it actually being Rudolph? Didn't give you his nose. I mean, there's other reindeer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I've never told my grandchildren that I've eaten reindeer. But we were in another village in Norway, and the guy at the hotel was very pleased because they got a fresh shipment of whale, and he was bitterly disappointed when I wasn't going to take the special for the night, which was the whale. And I'm trying to explain to him that in Australia we go out of our way to stop whale um, hunting. And uh, he just thought we were the, oh, I don't know, the nastiest people, I think, after that. He, he couldn't he couldn't understand why we wouldn't accept the whale. But, you know, we, we met up with uh, our friends Nikos and Judy uh, on our first trip back, way back, oh, boy, nearly – 20 years ago now, and um, uh, on another trip through Greece we, in Athens, we stayed with them, uh, which was lovely. And it was – was it Christmas time? Sure. Easter. Easter. It was Easter. Easter. And, of course, Greece is a fairly religious country, so we went to outside the church with them at um, – was it midnight? Yeah, midnight mass. Midnight, and midnight then mass. the next day we went to a big knees up where everyone drank way too much wine and ate lamb off the spit and sang and danced. It was great fun. Yeah, so you, you, you do have well, – we wouldn't go to a midnight mass ever. Wait for that bolt of lightning coming through the ceiling, sure. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, they're just wonderful, wonderful people and you get to experience uh, the way that they live and that's part of – sharing those those um, those times with them, I think, on the road. I'm oh, sure absolutely you've had them too. Agree. And Birgit and I stayed in a, a little village up in the north of Uganda and um, it, this was a, 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 an eyes wide open situation for us. We, we knew a lot of the stuff that we were encountering, but we hadn't actually physically been involved with it before. And it was things like seeing... Um, the woods that people had had to go out for kilometres and kilometres to hunt out and then to drag back for all of the cooking to be done. The fact that water had to be carried in jerry can for miles from the river for everything that happened in 
the village. So for the cooking and the washing and everything. And we were um, given somebody's hut. You know, they vacated their hut for us to stay in it. And every day they would bring us um, a big washing up bowl and um, a bucket of um, toasty hot water and a, and a mug. And in many parts of Africa, that's how you wash. So you stand in, in the washing up bowl and you spoon water over yourself um, with the mug. Sorry, mug water over yourself, but it didn't sound right, did it? Um, <laughs> and till you're wet and then you soak yourself down and then you rinse um, that, the, the, the soap off. And you've got the one bucket to do that. Anyway, we weren't using all of the water because we traveled so much, we knew about this and we just didn't need loads of water to get properly clean. And to our horror, they started to, to worry that we weren't using enough water and they wondered if we were do, if they were doing something wrong. Were they giving it to us <laughs> in the wrong, wrong temperature, for example? Uh, uh, you know, all, yeah, every yeah. single drop of this was carried. It was heated in battered aluminium pots over wood that had been dragged for those miles through the bush and all this sort of stuff. Um, and we didn't realize that we were upsetting them by not using yeah. the right amount of water. And we were their yeah. only guests, so they wanted us to be as welcome as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you leave them a gift? Same? Oh, for sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Michelle, in in South America, did you have any that was a real eye opener for you? You go in and see. I, I mean, it's not that you didn't even have to learn anything, but just like Sam's story there, where you you think, wow, it's incredible how different people live than than what we're used to. Yeah, very much so. And and I think in every country that we ran through or rode through in South America, there was every level or stratus of life. So you would see people living in little huts, um, you know, kind of tin or corrugated tin shacks with no running water, no electricity. And then we had the luxury of staying with, you know, some moto friends or people who, you know, had been referred to us and staying in really nice apartments um, or big houses. So, uh, it was really interesting and I'm, I'm such a student of life and I really like cultures just everywhere that I go. So I like to know a little bit about the language and a little bit about the history. And I like just, you know, every little detail of their lives, even things that might be mundane. So where do they get supplies? Where do they get food? Um, you know, how do they, how do they live? Just what do they do? And I remember traveling, you know, leaving the United States for the first time by motorcycle and crossing into Mexico and, you know, figuring out that I was going to have to wash clothes, you know, as a motorcyclist, you you make do. And so I, I was um, traveling with a collapsible sink and I would wash my clothes in the collapsible sink um, and then hang them out on a line. I carried a bit of paracord with me and then strung it between a tree or a fence post and my bike and let things, you know, all of my laundry dry. But I'd get into a village or, um, you know, stay with with friends of friends in Central and South America and find that really they kind of did it the same way. They didn't have washing machines. They didn't have large refrigerators and a lot of the things that we're accustomed to in the Western world. So, just to kind of figure out, you know, how, how they did things. I, I, and my family comes from a farming background. So as I was riding through different countries, I, I was always interested in what crop was in season and how the 
they plant that? How did the family live? Um, you know, where do they make their income? And just so just there's so much opportunity when you meet locals to really learn every aspect of their life and, you know, how the world evolves and how things fit together in, in their part of the world. It's just so interesting. Mm-hmm. I like that student of life. Uh, I like that. I, I, I connect with that as well. Hey, so so in, in all the people you guys have met when, you, when you've been out on, on different trips and things, do you think that there's any chance that when they see you guys traveling along in your motorcycle, you know, with stickers on your panniers, et cetera, et cetera, that they kind of see you guys as outliers? You know, you guys are this, wow, check this out. I know we sort of alluded to this at first, Brian and Shirley, but, but I'm sort of thinking this, like, are you guys, you know, like as the, is the traveler, the outlier, the traveler, the interesting, weird person with these weird little things that you think it all makes sense. Well, I'm traveling because I'm exploring. When we have our bikes all loaded up with our things and we're traveling somewhere, people probably look at it as if it's a little strange. Do you think that's a possibility? Mm, oh, maybe yeah. I doubt it though. Oh, it's really quite normal. You're a weirdo, sure. We don't mind that. Right. Okay. Well, with that, let's take a let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about hostels, which which should be fun. To hostel or not is what we're calling it. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks. .co.uk. Fresh Tracks has been around since the 90s. They work with companies to uh, inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through team building exercises. And they uh, they work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, uh, Yahoo, Comic Relief, um, etc. So their website is freshtracks.co.uk. And um, if you have a company, I would certainly drop by their website and look at what they're offering, especially today with uh, with things being different now. I mean, let's face it, companies are operating in a, in a sort of a new world. Well, Fresh Tracks is on top of that. Freshtracks.co.uk. And uh, we're certainly pleased to have them sponsoring Raw. So for, um, for part two, we're going to wrap this up today with our, a conversation about to hostel or not. So many travelers obviously stay in hostels. That's why they're there. I'd sort of like to talk about the ups and downs of hostel staying, whether you guys are trying it, who's tried it, and, and what you think about um, hostel staying, and, and maybe what you get from it, what you lose with it. Who stays in hostels? Which one of you stays in hostels? I have a lot. Oh, well, we have. Yeah, we well, have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you have, and 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 uh, Sam, it's not a regular thing for you. It's not a regular thing, uh, but they have lots of of good things as well as the disadvantages. Okay, um, I prefer to camp if I possibly can, um, or stay in little local hotels, little lo- local motels, places like that. Um, some lovely stories from those, but from um, hostels, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so so let me start with Michelle then. Michelle, why hostels? Sounds like something you'd like, right? Hostels are, are something that's sort of your bag? Um, yeah, they can be. I mean, I, I they're very much a mixed bag. They can be like anything. They can be hit and miss. But I do like hostels. Um, they they kind of have their use and their place. Traveling overland, I actually like to camp where I can and find campgrounds. But oftentimes, if you're going into a city and you want to see, you know, the heart of a city like Mexico City or... Santiago or someplace, it's it's harder to find places where you can camp. So a hostel seems to be a really budget-friendly way to go about um, finding a place to stay in the heart of a city so you can access the sites and maybe even pick up motorcycle parts and things like that when you're in town. 
So it's price. Is, is that really what attracts you to the most or is there something else? Oh gosh. I think, I think for me, it's a lot of things. I, I really feel like, um, you know, as a motorcyclist, I, I can oftentimes get a little too much time in my helmet if I'm covering <laughs> a lot of ground. So it's a good way to have a conversation and meet other people and just have some interactions. So you can kind of break up some of the periods of solitude with having some interaction and meeting other travelers. And they, you know, again, it can be a mixed bag, but they can be a lot of fun and kind of a crossroads for culture um, and also just a, a budget-friendly way to do it. What do you expect when, when you're going to a hostel? What are you expecting from the, from the uh, hostel itself? Um, well, it's, you know, everyone is a little bit different. I've stayed in hostels where I have a private room with an ensuite bathroom. So it's almost like um, just a little more economical version of a hotel. But I've also stayed in hostels with um, large dormitories and stayed in a dorm with bunk beds. Um, and maybe up to like 10 or 12 people. And sometimes they've been co-ed dorms. Sometimes they're women-only dorms. Those aren't my favorite situations. I, I've gotten to the point in life where I'd like to have a private room. Um, so, <laughs> and especially when you're traveling with a lot of gear, security-wise, it's nice to have your own dedicated space where you can kind of feel comfortable and relax. But I'm looking for, especially when traveling by motorcycle, looking for one that has... Um, a place that can get my bike off the street if possible. Sometimes there's a courtyard or a place to tuck the bike in um, so it's discreetly tucked away. And just really looking for location and cleanliness, some of the usual standards that you look for when you're paying for any kind of accommodation. So you mentioned conversation. You, you have your time in your helmet and you want to chat with somebody, et cetera. Is it because they're travelers that it makes good conversation or just people in general? It can be it can be a little bit of both, but I think for the majority of my experiences, it's just that they're travelers. So um, I've been places where um, I've checked into a hostel and not really had a lot of information about what I'm going to do in that particular location or city. So really, there's sort of a, a community. Uh, uh, a feeling that you get from people that stay in hostels regularly. And for the most part, I would say it's younger people. So there's a lot of energy and a lot of vibrancy and a lot of fun conversation. Um, for the most part, they're pretty open to giving you suggestions and ideas on what to do and where to find the good stuff, so to speak. Mm. Um, so it's kind of, you know, like a direct wire into what's hot, um, what's popular, what's fun, what's going on right now. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's partly because they're travelers. Sam, how about you? you? You mentioned you've used them before. How do you feel about hostels? I like hostels. Um, I try to stay um, clear of hostels that are what I call gap year hostels. Because like Michelle, I'm, I like to mix with other travelers. And I think gap years, um, travelers are not the same sort of mindset as myself. I want to spend more time wandering around the back streets and less time drinking at midnight and passing out. Um, that's awfully cynical of me, but um, um, yeah, I, I hope you get what I mean. I'm, I'm just sort of being a bit cut and sharp here. But um, and I, travel hostels, I, I quite like. Dorms, yeah, I mean, they're, they're cheap, but some dorms um, 
yeah, people just don't have dorm etiquette and um, they can be noisy and there's always the carrier bag rustler and the drunk snorer and the late night talkers and the phone game players and the TV watchers and you know, in the dorms and all of those sorts of things. And you've just got to accept that that is what you're going to find if you're in a dorm. And um, what Michelle said about security, yeah, absolutely, especially when you've got um, lots of gear on, on your motorcycle. But I, I like hostels in town centres if there is one where it's likely to be um, a crossroads um, for overlanders. They, they kind of be um, a bit of an oasis of familiarity so in, on the road in foreign lands, if you're with me. So where, you know, every day, you're dealing with different culture, different languages, sometimes um, stopping in a hostel for a few days, you're rubbing shoulders with other travellers and you can just really chill and speak your own language or speak other languages that you might know. Um, but they're also great place, meeting places for other nationalities. And I think for people who are riding solo, they're also quite good places to um, bump into other people who might be heading the next few hundred miles in the same direction. And sometimes when you've been traveling on your own for quite a long time, um, suddenly having a, a kindred spirit to travel with is um, is quite a nice thing to do. But I have to tell you, sometimes it's just the fact that there's a proper stove and there's an oven that I can use so I can bake some bread or make a pie or just something completely different to the stuff that I'm cooking when I'm, I'm on, the, on the road and using my camp stove. So it's, it's little things like that. Um, but I mean, the other thing is they can be refugees from bad weather. Um, you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time or just the, a, a weird weather pattern rolls in. Well, I'd rather be holing up in day after day of thunderstorm in a hostel than I would be on a campsite. A any other downside? Can I talk about gap year travellers? Oh, absolutely. Can I just tell a story about <laughs> gap year travellers? We stayed in a hostel um, on the Brazilian side of Iguazu Falls. And we only crossed over to go to the other side of the falls and to go to the bird park. Amazing. We're staying in this hostel and there were lots of young people there and I'm convinced they are what Sam describes as gap year travellers. Uh, I was talking to a couple of the girls in the, by the pool and they hadn't been to the falls or the bird park and had no intention of doing so because their visa was expiring in a couple of days and they were going to have to go home. Uh, they'd come for the party and that night we went into the bar and the barman was giving everyone one free Caprahini cocktail. So we had one free one, we bought one and uh, it was a very nice night. The next day we turned up at breakfast, none of these young people appeared at breakfast and halfway through this young girl turned up and she sat down and she said, I'm really worried about my friend. And I said, why? And she said, oh, she's so sick. And I said, look, it's just going to be a hangover. She said, yeah, she had seven Caprahinis last night. <laughs> no, dear. <laughs> no wonder they weren't going to get to see the falls or the um, or the bird park. They needed to see a hospital, you, seven Caprahinis. You turned into a mother, though. I did. I gave her sound advice to take her friend a can of Coca-Cola. And if she was living in Australia, a potato cake, but I'm not sure what that would have been in Brazil, but something greasy and fried and she would feel better by lunchtime, if not before. <laughs> a potato cake. Is that, is that a hash brown? Is that what we, we call a hash brown? Uh, no, no. Um, a potato cake. Uh, they're called potato scallops in some places as well. It's a slice of potato in batter and then fried. Mm. 
God, that sounds really yeah. nice. Now, oh, you've got my taste yeah. buds going now. <laughs> quite a delicacy with lashings of salt and vinegar. Uh, wow. Um, and of course, anything fried tastes good, right? <laughs> That's what it comes down to. It's the grease. It's when not the food. Yeah, that's right. But just talking, but Michelle hit everything on the head with, with hostels, you know, dorms, no. Um, uh, if you're going to get things stolen, nine times out of ten, they'll be stolen by other travellers in in um, uh, hostels. We've found, yeah, that people had cameras and all that sort of stuff taken. And quite clearly, it wouldn't be the staff at the hostel no. that was knocking no. staff off. No. It'd be some traveller who didn't no. really concern themselves too much with traveller etiquette. Yeah. Yep. Is that more in the dorm style ones? Yeah, probably. I mean, we've never we've stayed in a dorm once, but we were the only two people in it. <laughs> Um, you just get to an age in life where you do not want to share with 10 of your 15, 10 or 15 close friends you've never met before. <laughs> but um, like Michelle, we've stayed in hostels with um, ensuite rooms or a really nice room where you're only sharing the bathroom with two or three other rooms, not not quite too bad. Um, they're also good places for security for the motorcycle. We've always mm-hmm. found that hostels will, if they don't have a locked up garden, they will let you bring the bike inside. They won't quibble about it sitting in the lounge room or or wherever. Seems like the, that some of the hostels anyway will bring in as many people as they can actually get through the door rather than worrying about, you know, exactly what places they have to put people in. But I guess it just depends on which ones you're going to. Yeah. You know, there's a backpackers hostel. Sorry, go on, Michelle. Oh, no, I was just going to say, especially if that's in a place where there's a special event or something going on, maybe they're filled to the brim yeah. with people trying to make the most of it. But I haven't really run into stuff like that. I've stayed in one or two wobbly ones in um, major tourist centers where it's been really pack them in and it's it's been no private rooms. It's all been dorms and all shared bathrooms. And if you want to shower, then you've got to wait until everybody's gone out for the day before you can get one, that sort of thing. And But they've tended to be really cheap. And if I've been on a tight budget, well, you adapt, don't you? But they're not places that I chose to stay. And while we were talking about this, I was thinking about um, one of the best hostels that I've ever stayed in. And it, it was the best for many reasons. And it was called The Backpack. And it's in Cape Town. And it was one of the first backpackers hostels in um, South Africa. And it was run by Lee and Tony, who were both um, overlanders themselves. And they set this place up um, as they would want a backpacker's hostel to be. So it was um, a lot of stripped woods and and nice furnishings, but easy to take care of, because this was obviously the trick with large numbers of people coming through. Um, Basically, but well-equipped kitchen, um, comfortable beds, um, there was even a small swimming pool and a big barbecue outside and all of this sort of stuff. But um, Michelle said something that made me smile. And that was one of the most important areas of this backpackers hostel was their information zone, as they call it. And there, there were notice boards and books and maps and all sorts of things about everything that you could want to do in Cape Town bus timetables and walking routes and um, top tips about places to go and quirky things to see and all of that sort of stuff. And most of those things I would never have found out about had I not been um, ending up staying in that place. So yeah, um, sometimes hostels can be cracking places. 
Do you find with the um, with connectivity now and social media, et cetera, where you can just go online and go onto Facebook groups, that, that some of that um, can be found just online? You, you know, that um, even probably more of it can be found online now rather than those places? Like, is, is that disappearing? No, I think you can definitely find no. a lot of information online, but I think it's it's really difficult to replace an actual personal reference. So if you sit and talk with someone and ask you know, detailed questions and ask them about their experience. Um, you know, having that face-to-face conversation and getting a recommendation makes a big difference, at least for me. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good piece of information. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing like the yeah. personal recommendation. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, actually meeting the person that, that's telling you about the story sort of thing. Yeah, definitely. That's, a, that's a, a good answer for that. Hey, which accommodations do you think best connect you with culture and your surroundings as opposed to meeting other travelers? Because I think that's sort of what hostels are, aren't they? they, they well, there is that advantage that we just talked about where, where you're getting to find out about other things. So maybe maybe that's incorrect. You are meeting lots of other travelers, obviously, because that's, that's what's there. But um, are there are there better accommodations than that that would that would better connect you with a culture? Certainly, I'm, I'm talking about giving you a, like a, sort of a firsthand experience of the place that you're you're visiting i did hear about one guy who was using tinder (laughs) tinder (laughs) (laughs) so um how how does does tinder work sam maybe just walk us through this i have no idea i just heard about this guy that was using it (laughs) (laughs) but hostels in their nature you're not going to meet locals you're going to meet foreigners right yeah You've probably yeah. got more chance of meeting locals staying in a, a a cheaper hotel in the town where someone who lives in another city in that country would come in and stay, whereas a local wouldn't think of staying in a hostel. You've got things like home shares and um, language learning opportunities in people's homes. You know, I'm thinking about Guatemala, for example. There are so many opportunities there for people who are um, heading down to South America and they'll hole up in Antigua in somebody's home for a couple of weeks and you know, force feed themselves Spanish. But they're learning about the, the culture of Guatemala while they're doing it at the same time and working on farms. Um, that's something that um, happens um, quite often and is a great way to get to know local people woofing and, and so on. Um, in the States, uh, I did labor trades in lots of places, you know, just to roll up to places and offer to change, exchange work for somewhere to sleep. And that gave me the opportunity to tuck my toes underneath the, the, the culture table. Um, but um, the country towns, I mean, this is basically what Shirley was saying, I think. Um, staying in little local hotels off the tourist track and away from the chains and the smarter looking hotels. And then just taking the time to get to know the, the staff themselves in those places. There was a hotel that I stayed in in a town called Eldoret in Kenya. And I stayed in the New Lincoln Inn. And this was this was quite posh for me. But it was the only place that I could find when I was heading from Kenya into Uganda, um, which had um, secure off-road parking for my bike. So I could pay... I paid the extra money but it was such a nice place I stayed there on the way back um, again and I stayed there for a week this time in part because I thought Eldorette was quite an interesting um, place and I thought well if I if I stay here for a bit longer then I can have a look at the markets and potter around the streets but one of the things that I made a point of doing was chatting to the bar staff and one of the kitchen staff and one evening after I've been there for two or three days they said to me look we're going for a drink after work tonight do you want to join us and what a, what a great opportunity to, to to get underneath the skin of a country by spending time with people who, yeah, it's their country. And I actually ended up going home 
um, with one of the kitchen staff, she invited me back to, to meet her family. And her name was Angavu, which I later found out was called Shining One. And it really suited her personality. You know, she was one of these lovely people that you just want to spend t- um, time around. And her whole family was like this. The last day I stayed at the New Lincoln, I was going around saying goodbye to everybody. And um, she, with a very shy little giggle, told me what they'd been calling me behind my back. And they'd been calling me Tumani. And I said, well, what on earth does that mean? And she said, oh, it means hope because you're always curious and you're always smiling. And I thought, yeah, this is the sort of reason I want to travel, those sorts of experiences. Yeah. We had a similar experience in Turkey. We were staying in a, a hotel in the middle of Istanbul and um, we were travelling with a girlfriend, which I know we've told those stories before. And it was her last day and we were trying to find somewhere good to have dinner. And we bumped into the young man who was the night uh, desk manager at the hotel. And he asked what we were doing. We told him we were trying to find somewhere to eat. So he recommended that we go to this restaurant called Doi Doi. And he said, I'll direct you. And he took us down there, then took us into the restaurant, sat with us, ordered the food, then wouldn't let us pay because we were his guests. And he was just the most gorgeous young man and so sharing and uh, and uh, a caring kind of kid. And um when we said goodbye, we, we left him, you know, things we hadn't used like phone cards and we left him some cash to thank him very much. And uh, he his next role in life was going to be as a conscript in the Turkish army going and fighting the Kurds. So I don't know whether that young man ever survived his battle experience because in those days back in the late late 1990s, it was a very dangerous thing for a young Turkish man to do. But he just showed such generosity of spirit um, mm. to older people, we were old enough to be his parents, uh, but it was just lovely what he did for us. Brilliant. Yes. It's such a humbling experience when something like that happens, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah. I, rem- I remember staying at a small inn in Venezuela, in the mountains of Venezuela, and um, this place, because not many travelers get to Venezuela. And at the time it was really difficult to get across the border. So when we crossed in and went up into the mountains, most of the locals were really unaccustomed to even having any kind of tourism or any kind of uh, outsiders, foreigners in their part of the world. So we stumbled across a small hotel. I think it had six or eight rooms and it was on the top of this mountain above uh, the city of La Grita. We checked in late one afternoon and the young woman that was working at the desk um, said that she had to call the owner to find out how much to charge. It had been that long since they'd had a tourist. So I sat and waited. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was so bizarre. But her her name was uh, Yolanda and Yolanda was very sweet. So she checked us in. We got settled in our room. She, you know, double checked, uh, you know, a couple of times in the evening because we were the only guests. Did we need anything? Was everything, you know, to our satisfaction? And she worked in the evening until about 11 o'clock. And then she um, walked down the road to wherever her home was, uh, whether it was at a farm or wherever. And the next morning, she was back at work at 7. So I went down to the office in the morning to tell her that we were checking out and getting ready to go. And she had brought um, food. We 
we weren't expecting any breakfast. It wasn't included with the hotel. And we, of course, traveled with a stove and had, you know, food on the motorcycles. And she had brought us homemade arepas, which are kind of a corn cake, and had put some shredded chicken on top and and made these little kind of uh, tortas or whatever for breakfast uh, for each of us and brought little bottles of orange juice from a store. And I have no idea where she went to get them because we were in the country a few miles from that nearest town. So I had this conversation with her about where where had she gotten this. And um, she had made quite an effort. It had really, I'm sure, been a hit to her financially. And she had to arrange transportation to go down into town to get these two little bottles of orange juice for us. But she wanted us to have a nice stay and just went over the top. And afterwards, you know, she kind of elaborated about how she had a college degree and she didn't have any kind of an opportunity for work. People were really struggling in Venezuela and there were no jobs and she couldn't get anything in her field. Her sister was a college graduate and didn't have any kind of a career. She was living at home with her parents and just really such an incredible opportunity to see, you know, and hear, have a conversation with a local on what life was like in Venezuela because it it wasn't a place that I heard a lot about. And the hospitality that people will go to to share, you know, a moment with you, to make you feel welcome, to make you feel special, to make you feel cared for. It was unbelievable. And she didn't really have any money. And here she was taking, you know, the little bit of money that she did have to make sure that we had a nice breakfast that morning. And that was out of her pocket. It wasn't something that the hotel was providing. So yeah, it's amazing how many kind people there are out there. You know, I don't don't know why humans care about making someone they don't know happy but i'm certainly glad a lot of us do that you know and yeah. it's and it's as simple as when you're going out and you're you're doing your shopping or whatever just you know being friendly to somebody who's a stranger that, that you know works at a store whatever the case is it makes such a difference i know we've sort of said this sort of stuff before on the show but um i, I just think it, it, it you can never say it enough you know you can never remind us all enough about it yeah yeah i, I have I have a question, though, I want to put to everybody when it comes to this, and, and it's probably going to be a very, very easy one. But so if money's not an issue and there's other alternatives, will you stay at a hostel, Michelle? Yes. How come? For meeting people. Mm, okay. it, it is such, and I think Sam said it perfectly, it's a crossroads for overlanders or travelers. And I really love that crossroads, that opportunity to meet other people and have conversations and share stories. And, you know, I, I meet people from countries that I've, I may never travel to, but I have an opportunity to hear a little bit about their country and, um, yeah, have an evening with, with just a fun group of random strangers from all over the world. Where else can you do that? Okay. And and the question when I'm saying money's not an issue, I'm, I'm not saying, cause I know we're all rich. <laughs> I'm saying that <laughs> yeah. if, if we're traveling on a budget, right? So, so how, right. how about you, Sam? So you're traveling on a budget, you're concerned about how much money you're spending. Other alternatives, will you stay at a hostel? Um, if I'm not camping, yeah. I, I, I can't put it any better than Michelle just did. The doors of conversation tends to be wide open in a hostel. Shirley? Um, um I, I don't know. Brian doesn't know the question because he's he's just come back into the room. Oh, oh we've caught Brian walking um, away <laughs> and not listening. <laughs> I was, I was well, Brian, maybe I should, if I was the teacher, I'd be calling you up next. 
Brian. Because <laughs> <laughs> quite clearly so, he wasn't paying attention. So I'll go through this again. And uh, and I'll just yeah, say so yeah. so again so if, if money's not an object, um, meaning that you you know um sorry yeah if money's not not an object, I don't even know my own question now so if money's not an object you know you you don't have to worry about your budget so in other words you're not worrying about a budget there's other alternatives would you stay at a hostel? Um, yeah, it depends where you are. If you like, um, like who falls into Brazil, I would because we met other people there. Yeah, to meet people, yeah. yes, but yeah. um, it's probably not my go-to accommodation now, yeah. whereas um, 20 years ago it probably would have been more so. Yeah. Sleep is very important, and you have to be honest, at hostels you get a lot of people who don't, you know, going to bed is not a priority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm, I would be I'm wanting to leap into staying in dorms again. I, for some reason, I don't sleep quite as, sleep, as deeply as I as I used to, but perhaps that's something to do with the amount of alcohol I'm not imbibing now. Well, <laughs> now we know to stay in a hostel, you need to be shickered. Absolutely. That's <laughs> it. Earplugs in and lots of, and a bottle of scotch. <laughs> I mean, I lo- I've been loving the week, you guys. So um, I've left Shirley a lot of notes. Yeah. So yeah. Um, <laughs> you go. I'm going riding. So. Bye. Catch okay. you later. Okay, Brian. Bye. Thank Thanks, you Brian. very much Bye. for your time and enjoy your ride. <laughs> Cheers, boys. Cheers. Bye-bye. And there he goes. Off there to have goes. fun. Like a big kid. Yep. <laughs> yep. Anything else to talk about with um, with to hostel or not? Does anyone have an opinion that we didn't express here? So it's one thing about cheap accommodation, um, and we found this particularly in eastern Russia, is the room by the hour, which is something. <laughs> it conjures up all manner of thoughts, but we stayed in a truck stop on the Trans-Siberian Highway and the woman on the desk was most bemused that we actually wanted the room all the way through till breakfast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so apparently America the truck too. drivers just, they just, um, well, certainly we I think they just go to, to have four hours sleep, a shower, something to eat and get back on the road. But we did stay in a couple of places in Korea that were clearly um, by the hour for other reasons and they were also bemused that we wanted the room all the way through till breakfast time. Mm. One of those rooms had a one-way mirror into the bathroom and the other had a bag of ropes next to the bed. I'm just saying, boy, (laughs) cheap accommodation can sometimes have its drawbacks. (laughs) Stayed in one with pink furry bracelets hanging off the end of the bed. (laughs) Nice. In Central Central America and Mexico, they have what they call love motels. Mm-hmm. And that sounds yes. a, bit, a bit like that. And they're mm-hmm. we exactly same thing. They were rented by the hour during the day, but they were empty at night because everyone that was having dalliances in the motel during the day had to go home at night. So we could find cheap accommodation, but we had to be out by eight a.m. because that's when their first round of customers would be coming through. <laughs> 8 so eight a.m. <laughs> yeah, on the way to work. <laughs> Apparently. There were some in Korea that had, where you drove in the driveway, they had long um, plastic strips hanging down like a curtain. So you drove through and and moving the car through or bike through broke those plastic strips open so you could get into the car park. But anyone walking past couldn't see which cars were in the car park. (laughs) That's how the ones in Central America 
too. Yeah, South America <laughs> like that too. Yeah. Oh, dear, oh, dear. So maybe we all need a lot more money to travel so we can stay in places unlike the love hotels and the um, the Russian trucks. But you won't have any stories to tell afterwards, though. I mean, it'll just be a boring hotel <laughs> yeah, you know. stayed at, right? I know. I know. I, I just used to true. fear that I would press the wrong button and not be able to get a decent <laughs> night's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, moving on now, our, our, our crowd is, is definitely very small here right now, but um, let's hit the plugs, I guess. Michelle, what do you have for plugs? Um, I, I guess I've got two, if you don't mind. Um, one is that um, I think as people are allowed to travel again and as the weather allows in the Northern Hemisphere and um, hopefully some travel restrictions are relaxing when it's safe, and people are out and about and on the road, I just wanted to throw an idea out there to take a book with you on your trip. Um, and, and not any particular author, although I know Shirley and Sam and myself have books that are out there. I think just anyone. There are so many incredible motorcycle and travel authors out there in the world. So grab a book and take one with you and be inspired on your adventures. And if you aren't able to get out and travel yet, a book might be the perfect way to have a little bit of an escape. Um, and give you that alternative so you can go for a wander, at least virtually, if not really. I like um, that. I, I like that. Let me just jump in here because I, I have yeah. something to say. I was going to say, um, Road Dog Publications, um, we have him uh, advertise um, on Adventure Rider Radio. He does travel books, so you can look up Road Dog Publications. But the other thing I was going to ask you is, are you saying a paper book? Is it okay to take a Kindle? Because then you can have lots it's- of books. <laughs> it's okay to take a Kindle. Okay. Yeah, you can squeeze lots of them in there. Because I wasn't sure if you were going for the analog feel, like if, <laughs> if that was part of it or whether it was just the actual reading the book. Oh, it, it, that's up to the reader. Okay. I, I'm old fashioned. I like to turn a page, a physical page, but that's just me. Right. So. Yeah, I, I tend <laughs> to agree. Oh, me too. And if you read your Kindle in the bath and it slips into the water, it plays <laughs> havoc. But well, if you're reading a real book in the bath and it slips in the water, it just crinkles up the bottom two inches of the book. It's okay. Much more durable. <laughs> Sorry, Michelle. Go ahead with your, your other one. No, the the other one is just sort of instead of a plug so much an invitation. Um, I am opening for the season in Custer, South Dakota. I have the Chalet Motel. And not that anyone needs to stop and stay. In fact, it might be a bit challenging to get a room in the area. It's a bit expensive. We're, we're very popular this time of year. But if there are any travelers coming through the area, um, listening fans of the show that want to stop and say hello, I can always put the kettle on or grab a cold drink for them and give them a place to take a break in the shade. So stop and say hello. Wow, very cool. And you grew up in that area, so you know you must know very well. I did. I was born actually in Sturgis and that is not how I found motorcycles, but, um, you were born at Sturgis. So like during the event, well, not at Sturgis. I was born in the town of Sturgis, Uh, not during the rally, but it'd make a good story. (laughs) Wouldn't it? It would, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would be a good story. (laughs) Um, sure. So, and that, and that's all you have. That's all I've got. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Shirley, what do you have? Um, Brian's left a whole list of um, things that people can do online for those of us who can't travel very far and there's no events. Like in Australia, there's not much happening. So I shall put those in the show notes, but it's things like um, bikearoundoz.com and um, 
motorcycle community and Clinton's Mount and the Adventure Travel Film Festival. So there's things motorcycling to do down under. Um, of course, we're going into winter. Not that our, we have a real winter like you guys have a real winter. Um, so I'll put those into the show notes for you, Jim. Okay, perfect. Sam, how about you? My plug actually has uh, come about from um, a contact today on Instagram and uh, a, a chap that I sort of met very briefly at um, the London Motorcycle Show got in touch to say that um, he's really interested in getting involved with motorcycle travel and um, but he's completely new to it, doesn't have any friends um, who are involved in it. Um, where does he start and um, is there anything that he can get involved with? And of course, I pointed him in the direction of Adventure Rider Radio and Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Um, but I've also said to, suggested to him uh, that there are various events that he can get involved with. And in the UK, um, things are now beginning to open up a little bit um, as COVID is being um, brought under control. And um, I see that uh, there are more events happening in the United States as well. So I'm going to ask Jim and Elizabeth to put um, some names and links into the show notes for anybody else who's beginning to think, well, actually, yeah, want to get out and about, want to rub shoulders with people who are interested in motorcycle and travel. So there might be some ideas there for you for things to go to. That's great. And we'll put them in the show notes. And I don't know about rubbing shoulders, though, Sam. We, should we be rubbing shoulders right now? Uh, virtually. <laughs> but re- virtually, virtually in reality. Now there's right. uh, Have you seen what people are doing for the handshakes? Has anyone seen that? You know, like, I mean, I've seen an elbow touch because yeah. we, we have to break ourselves this handshake, which is kind of disgusting if you think about it anyway, but. It's like blowing out birthday candles, isn't it? That was always disgusting. Yeah. The elbow bump was very big here, but I saw on the news that in England, you're going to be officially able to hug soon. That's right. I saw that today as well, and I just thought, oh, for goodness sake, there are some very weird things happening here still. And you just think, mm-hmm. okay, let's hope some common sense is still going to be around. Yeah. We hug down here now. Really? Yeah. How cool is that? I miss it. I know. I yeah. missed it too. It was awful when we couldn't hug, but we can hug now. And you can actually greet someone that you know really well with a hug in the street and people don't go <gasps> around you. Nice. So that's good. Mm. Gives us all something to aim for, doesn't it? Yes. I reckon. That's a sign of life is getting back to normal. Yeah. Terrific. That wraps this one up. Thank you very much, everyone. I know we've dwindled down to a, to a smaller group here than we started with. And of course, with Grant missing, we've definitely missed Grant, but um, we will get him in on the next one. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, nice to visit with everybody. Thanks for listening in, everybody. Always a pleasure. that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw and thank you to my co-host Sam Manicom starting with Sam Manicom he lives in the UK he's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight year motorcycle journey around the world his website sam-manicom.com Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia they also publish their own books on motorcycle travel you can buy them wherever you get ebooks at their website aussiesoverland.com.au Michelle Lampfair is a motor traveler that also has a couple of great motor travel books The Butterfly Route and Tips for Travel Traveling Overland in Latin America. Both of those titles available on Amazon. As well, she has a motel for us motorcyclists and anyone else called the Chalet Motel. You can find out more about that at chaletmotelcuster.com. 
And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information, as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you want to get uh, your question or a topic suggestion in here, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information in here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.